Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew chapter 28, I, after uh, speaking this morning and going outside, did you see what I saw coming down from the sky? It was amazing. And uh, so I didn't know what was going to happen. We we're going to cancel service or what? You know, you just don't know. But uh, thank you so much for your participation in the text as we work through this together. And I wanted to um, bring to you uh, today uh, two messages, how the Lord has really been working in my own heart, my own life. So I just kind of think through this whole idea of world evangelization. I, um, in 1974, uh, in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, there was a meeting that took place for 10 days there. It's in July, right after I graduated from high school. And um, this meeting that took place there 43 years ago, hard to believe almost, this coming July will be 43 years, uh, really wanted to take a look at, at how Christianity was working in the world and things they needed to encourage one another. So 150 countries were represented at this uh, Lausanne conference. Um, and as they met together, they actually got a committee together and the chair of that committee was none other than John Stott. And they wanted to put together some type of agreement that they could agree on. And there were 15 points that, that John Stott led this committee in presenting to the people there at Lausanne. They call it the Lausanne Covenant. The first point I want to read to you if I can. This is what it says. We affirm our belief in the one eternal God creator and Lord of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who governs all things according to the purpose of his will. He has been calling out from the world a people for himself and sending his people back into the world to be his servants and his witnesses for the extension of his kingdom, for the building up of Christ's body, and for the glory of his name. We confess with shame that we have often denied our calling and failed in our mission by one, becoming conformed to the world, or two, by withdrawing from the world. Yet we rejoice that even when born by earthen vessels, the gospel is still a precious treasure. To the task of making that treasure Known in the power of the Spirit, we desire to dedicate ourselves anew. Matthew 28, 19, Isaiah 40, 28. I was thinking back at that time, and back at that time, there is a book out called Perspectives of, world, of the World Christian Movement. Anybody have heard this book, Perspectives of the World Christian Movement? Okay, there's a few of you. Uh, I have the third edition in my office and I think there's even one, a fourth edition now that has come out. But this book is basically a compendium of 123 articles, 105 writers. So several of the writers have two articles in it. Um, and it's about world evangelization, what is taking place in our world today. Um, not until 1990, according to the work done in this book, not until 1990, which is just a few years ago, did we have... 11% of our world that would be called dedicated Christians. 
And there's a difference between Christians and dedicated Christians. They have, ele- they have come up with the, the statistic 11.2%, which is one believer for every nine people worldwide who are not believers. But they see a great imbalance. The imbalance in the evangelical missionary efforts among the unreached people, 74% of all evangelical missionary efforts are concentrated in 67% of our world. Meanwhile, 32% of the world's population is considered unreached. And only 26% of the entire evangelical workforce is trying to crack into these boundaries. These unreached people include blocks of people who are Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhists. Of these three blocks, one half, or of the 50 unreached countries, 36 of these countries are Muslim. The second imbalance that they state is that, is that there is the imbalance of the possession of the Bible in their own language. And a number of articles, one article, chapter 78, which really scared me by Barbara Grimes. She and her husband have been part of Wycliffe Bible Translators since 1951. They say with confidence that there are some 6,700 known languages in our world. But she writes that there are at least 2,800 languages in her experience that have not had proper language study. And whenever a language study is done of a specific language, they discover more language offshoots from that specific language. So when she wrote this article back in 1999, I believe it was, she writes this article and says she believes there are more than 5,000 languages without a complete Bible or even a complete New Testament. And she concludes with these words, and I quote, it is not enough for people to have one book of the scripture to become mature, growing disciples. So there is a big translation job to do. And more and more, men and women, more and more, some of the the heavyweight schools in the evangelical world that I would consider heavyweight schools are now allowing graduate programs in the Master Divinity without languages. The third imbalance that they see is the megacities in this world. In 1950, we only had two megacities that registered more than 8 million inhabitants. In 2015... We now have 33. We have jumped from two to 33 cities of more than 8 million inhabitants. By the way, the two cities inhabited with 8 million people in 1950 was one on our east coast, which would be New York, and one in London. Those were the two, London and New York. It's interesting that now we have 33 cities of more than 8 million inhabitants, and 19 of these 33 cities are in Asia. Just think of, we're talking about Bangladesh, Dhaka, Bangladesh, 19 million, Beijing, 20 million, Tokyo, 30 million, Seoul, Korea, 14 million, Bangkok and Thailand, 15 million, on it it goes. But there are issues that face missionaries as they go into these areas. One is poverty. In these mega cities, almost 50% would be considered in poverty, and I mean in real desperate poverty conditions. 
There are racial and cultural diversities. People don't like one another. They're living next to each other. Tensions are high. Religious pluralism, if you take a stand that there is a religion that is not accurate or right, then that's going to be death to you. There's crime, noise, overcrowding, disease of all kind, masses of people that are hunkered down together in these mega cities are without Jesus Christ and the expense of even trying to find a place in one of these mega cities to live is in the thousands and thousands of dollars. I was talking to somebody not too long ago who is involved. They have a foundation and they have of $70 million and they are involved in helping some of these mega cities to have, uh, to be able to buy just a little small piece of land. And he told me, he said, we're talking millions of dollars to have a place to meet that would be no more. And he showed me just a very small area and just the amount of finances it takes. There's a great imbalance in the persecution of dedicated Christians. The International Christian Concern Organization writes, quote, more Christians are persecuted and martyred for their faith than in all previous centuries combined. People don't even want to travel today, much less live in one of these pluralistic societies. Nearly two-thirds of all Christians suffer some kind of persecution outside the United States in varying degrees from loss of freedom, discrimination, imprisonment, slavery, and and torture. Now, bring it to America. There are so many things I could say about America, but I think one of the most astounding statistics in American evangelicalism is this. Every minute in the United States, 50 Bibles are sold. Every minute in the United States. 50 Bibles are sold. So I bring this to your attention because there's a lot of ways that you can develop statistics and this is not a message for us to walk away with the burden and say, well, I'm not doing this or I'm not doing that or those kinds of things. But I think every now and then it's good for us to have a reality check and to realize that we have been called by Christ with this this incredible dynamic that we call affectionately the Great Commission, these last five verses of Matthew. And every now and then, I think it's very important for us to stop and to consider how do we measure ourselves. If you measure yourself by another church, that's that's devastating. If you measure yourself by another Christian, it says in 2 Corinthians, we don't do that. We don't measure ourselves by ourselves. That's not wise, Paul writes. So when I look at this particular text of scripture, I think it's very important for us to say, okay, Christ, you have brought us into this world and you have not called us to a city, you have called us to a generation. And by calling us to a generation, it doesn't mean that everybody is supposed to pick up and become a missionary in one of these mega cities. I think there are a lot more people who should be in some of these cities that are not because it's much more comfortable to be here. And we have every rational reason to be here. But I am saying this. I'm not the Lord, so I don't call people. I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I'm not pushing. In fact, what does Matthew say in Matthew chapter 9? He says this. Pray that the Lord of the harvest does what? He sends out the laborers into the field, that he he thrusts them out into the field. So maybe the issue is not the laborers, maybe the issue is we don't pray. And we are not willing to give our sons and our daughters, and we're not willing to give our families to go to these places that would be considered dangerous, unreached, no way. 
That can happen. So I give that to you as a backdrop so that as we, when we think together of these three points of these la this last paragraph, the point of caution with a blessing, the point of a correction, and the point of a command. These are powerful terms. So I want to read the text. So let's stand together, shall we? And you follow along in your holy text as I read from Matthew chapter 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some hesitated. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Father, with just a few minutes left to be able to share your word, and then this goes into the tomb of time, I pray that you would allow us to be able to think from a perspective of our father, who had one son, as David Livingston said, and he made him a missionary. And I pray that you would forgive us. We are more concerned about our degrees and our education and our lives than we are with your world. And Lord, you're not calling all of us to go to the mission field. That's very evident. But you are calling us to be disciple makers. So I pray that you would help us, that you would teach us. There are people who think that all they have to do is witness. There are some people who think that, well, they have to have a program. There, there are some people, Lord, who feel that all they need to do is go to church twice a week. So I pray that you would move us beyond ourselves and that we would see the holy text as you would want us to see it. And then would you teach us what we should do? And whatever you tell us to do through your word and through your spirit, may we do it without excuse and do even as Matthew did. He stood up, he forsook everything, and he followed you. This is very personal. So, Lord, make it personal to me, to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We saw already in verse 16 that there is a caution as well as a blessing. The caution is, in verse 16, is there are 11 disciples. This is the only time the word 11 is used. And we noted that there were 12 disciples initially, and now we're down to 11. And it's a great caution because it was an issue of Judas's heart. And when I think of Judas, I think of, for me, I just have to say, Lord, please help me to not be a Judas in my heart. I don't want to be a defector in my heart. Go hard after you. And I thank you for how you are working in my life to go hard after you. I want that for our family. I want that for our children. I want that for our extended families, for our church family. It's a great caution, but there's also a blessing in this because Jesus had said in chapter 28, verse 10, go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. Jesus pursues the 11 who had defected from him on a temporary basis. They ran from him, chapter 26, verse 56. They ran. No one is there. This is the first time in Matthew that we have a, a conversation, an eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball conversation between Jesus and the 11 who ran from him, but who in their hearts did not want to be defectors like Judas. 
But I want you to understand, men and women, when I read that text, I want you to know I think of the Old Testament because this is, what, this is who we have. We have a God who pursues us. Abraham lied in Egypt. God pursued him. Isaac lied to the Philistines. God pursued him. Moses ran to Midian. God pursued him. David committed adultery and murder. God pursued him. Jonah fled to Tarshish. God pursued him. And the 11 ran from Jesus and Christ is pursuing. So preachers do not need to be the Holy Spirit in your life. We need to be the exposers of the text and say, okay, here's the text. Now, what do you do with it? Let God's spirit work with you on that. I can't tell you what he wants to do, but there's, a, there's enough power in here to accomplish what needs to be done in Virginia Beach and throughout the world if we ever realize that. So here we have before us God pursuing, Christ pursuing the 11. So there's a caution, but there's a blessing. Then in verse number 17 and 18, we find this correction. They fall down, they worship him, they're probably flat on their face, but there's some hesitation among them. It doesn't say which ones, there's just hesitation. So that's going to be corrected in verse 18. Jesus is going to say to them, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth, and here's what I'm going to say to you. But I want to stop at verse number 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. This, this verse Everything changes on this verse, men and women. Everything shifts. I love what Carson says in his commentary. Redemptive history shifts on this verse. All authority is given to me. A divine passive. God the Father given. Turn back, if you will, to chapter 26 real quickly. I know my, I'm watching my clock up here. You say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> Nothing. Go ahead. Matthew 26, Jesus stands before at his trial, the fake trial. He stands before him, and finally the high priest says to him in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And look what Jesus does. Jesus says to him, yeah, you have said so, but from now on, I tell you, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, and what is the next word in your English text? Absolutely. And it's probably capitalized. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I'm not staying there. He's enthroned at the right hand of the power. And he's going to be coming in clouds of, clouds of heaven. And I say, I think this is exactly what Revelation 1.7 says. That when he comes, the clouds, every eye is going to see him. Even those who pierced him. And he's going to judge them. But in verse 46, Matthew was laying the groundwork, which actually goes all the way back to chapter 21 and chapter 22 of the issue of authority and so on. But we just have time to do that. I'm just saying to you that Matthew has been building the case that Jesus fits the Daniel 7, 13 and 14 model. That Jesus fits Psalm 110 verse 1. This is Jesus. He is sitting at the right hand of the power. And when Paul writes Romans in the first four verses, he makes this statement in verse number four that Jesus was, through the power of the Spirit, was, from the resurrection, raised as the Son of God in power. It should be a hyphenated term. It is a title of Jesus. Son of God in power. 
Did he have power in Matthew? Sure he did. They were sporadic outbursts of the Son of God in the book of Matthew. These sporadic outbursts where he would heal and yet he'd be hungry. He would make people to see and yet at the same time be thirsty. He slept and yet he could forgive sins. But those sporadic outbursts are no more. He is the one, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, who comes before the ancient of days and all authority and all dominion is given to him. He is the son of man. And that's exactly what he says in verse number 64. You will see the son of man. He is enthroned at the right hand of the power. And that's exactly where he is right now, men and women. When I look at that and, and consider what, he is, what Matthew brings up in chapter 28, verse number 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. The Father has given this mediated authority to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the authority in heaven and earth, given to him by the Father. Do you think that Jesus cares about the Muslims and the Hindus as much as he does our neighbors? Yes. Behold the Lamb of God that does what? Right. For God so loved the... Yes, there's no question. And he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. There, there is within the heart of God this, this call out that we are, in 2 Corinthians 5, there is this, this idea that God is in Christ calling out to the world to reconcile the world. And we are the ambassadors. We are, the, we are the, the exegetes of the light. As I said this morning. So this correction is made. But I want you to notice the last thing here in the few minutes that we have in verse 19 and 20. You have this, this amazing caution with a blessing. You have this correction. I want you, I want you to know who I am. And then verse 19 and 20, you have one command. That's it, one command. <laughs> so it's not hard. It's not like you got 17. You're not, you can, some people can't even put the 10 commandments. Don't worry about the command. You got one command. And around this command are three participles. And these modifying participles help us understand the command. So you have this command, make disciples. And then participle one, while you're going. Participle number two, you're baptizing. And participle number three, you're teaching. And he ends up, and my presence was with you. You see, what's interesting in the first participle is this, is, there is this, there's this assumption of Christ with his 11 and all of those who are after him as disciples, there is this assumption that there is not or any longer inactivity. There's going to be activity. And the activity is not prescribed. You've got to go to Bible college, then you have to go to seminary, and then you have to go raise your funds, and then you have to do this and do that. And finally, at when you're 65 years old, you make it to the mission field. No. You see, I'll never forget walking across the campus when I was a student at Liberty. I was walking across the campus with my best friend, Bill, and we were walking, and as we're walking across the campus, I said to him, Bill, I said, man, I, I, feel, I, I feel like God wants me to go to seminary, but I don't want to go to seminary. 
What I want to do is I want to get into the ministry. I want to preach. At that time, I was the, I was the intern pastor of a church right near Lynchburg. And, and here I am as a, a single senior in college. And, and there was a burning desire on the inside. I don't want to go to the mission field uh, or wait to go to the mission field. I don't want to wait to get in ministry. I want to do it now. I mean, the time is short. And I'll never forget Bill looking at me and saying to me, and said, said to me, Daniel, you are in the ministry now. God has called you to be a student here. God has given you this opportunity on the weekends to be at this little country church. You are in the ministry. I, I have never forgotten those words of Bill. You are right now in what God has called you to do. You are in activity. And so as you're in activity, what does that mean? It means that while you're in this activity, make disciples. It's not about waiting until, oh yeah, I, I can't wait till the preacher talks to you. I can't wait till the revival meetings. I, I can't wait till, no, you now are in. You're in. You're a disciple. You are a learner. You are a learner who has a relationship with Christ. And this relationship has moved you to commitment. And that makes up a disciple. So now go reproduce yourself. You reproduce yourself by, by putting your life in someone else's, by spending time with them, by talking with them, by bringing them to the place of Scripture. I mean, we've had, Martha and I just had a, just a very difficult week this week. <laughs> Somebody that supposedly we led to Christ and had discipled and spent a lot of time with just turned their back and went back into the Catholic Church. And, I, and, I, and talking with them this week, saying, what, I'm not, you know, is, is grace through people or is grace through Christ alone? But, but it's so spiritual. It's probably one of my converts. I hope not. But when I look at what's happening here in the text, it is very important that we, we, who have our learners and have a relationship and are committed, that we are investing ourselves in the one command that we have in Matthew, make disciples. And I love what he says here in the text. He leaves it wide open. He says, make disciples of all the nations. It's wide open. <laughs> now, he's already dealt with this issue of all nations. You find it three times in the Olivet Discourse. Turn back, if you will, to chapter number 24. Look at 24, verse number 9. This is the last message of Jesus. Remember I said this morning there are five messages of Jesus, long, complete messages of Christ in Matthew. And so if you look at 24.9, notice what it says here. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by who? What does your text say? All nations. For my name's sake. So when he brings up all nations here, Matthew brings this up in his mind. He's already used this phrase, all nations, and it's not a very pretty picture. The nations are not waiting, standing at their door, waiting for you to come up with the gospel. And when you walk to the door, they clap their hands and say, let's have coffee. This is exciting. They will hate you 
for my name's sake. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to who? What does your text say? All nations. And then that end will come. Look at chapter number 25. Verse 31 and 32, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll seat with his, on his glorious throne be, before him will be gathered all the nations. And he's going to judge them. So you already have that phrase and you say, I know some people are saying, oh, well, wait a second, wait a second, that's for, that's for the end times. Okay, I grant you that. It is for the end times. But let me say this to you. If this will happen in the end times, and by the way, what are the end times like? Just turn back to chapter 24, verse 21. Chapter 24, 21. Then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. I mean, this is the most difficult of all time. The last seven years of history as we know it today, it's called a tribulation. And it's incredible how everything is heightened the hatred is heightened. But interestingly, even the gospel is going to be heightened. But judgment also is going to be heightened. It's going to be real. That's why it's called the day of the Lord. He's going to actually mediate judgment upon the nations. But let me say this to you. If this is going to happen in the end times and it's really bad, how much more right now should we be doing this when things aren't that difficult? What's the worst thing you've had to face? Just think in your mind, what's the worst thing you had to face? Basically, somebody laughs and so we shy away. Or I got to pray in front of all these people, you know, for my meal. So we have the napkin prayer. We drop the napkin. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for this food in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the napkin prayer in our restaurants. And one more thing I would say to you, as I look back here, chapter number 28, one more thing I would say to you, he says, we are to make disciples of all these nations, and don't think that he's not including the Jews. What is happening in chapter 10 and verse 6, Matthew has already recorded Jesus saying to his 12, I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And now you have an expansion to that. That expansion is not instead of Israel, it is in addition to Israel. So that all nations, all the ethnics are to be reached with the gospel to be made disciples. And notice what he says. Here's what we're to do. We're to do two things to them. Middle of verse 19 and first part of verse 20. Middle of verse 19, baptizing. We are to permanently mark them. And verse number 20, we're to properly teach them. Permanently mark them. Properly teach them. How do you permanently mark them? It's not like circumcision, which happened only in Israel to the males when they were eight days old, and it was more about the faith of the parents than, than the child. But this is a permanent mark upon all of those who are learning, who have a relationship, and are ready to commit. Permanently mark them. And the mark is spiritual of the heart. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. You are being identified with that name, which we read just a few moments ago in chapter number 24, that all the world hates. 
You're going to be marked by this. The name that the world hates, that is what you're going to be marked by. And it's interesting, notice the word name is singular, not plural. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's very important, especially when you get to the last part of verse 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But it's important to see this, this triunity, this, this essential Godhead. You are being marked, and what's important in Acts, you will see in the name of Jesus, because what they're doing in that message is they are elevating Jesus to deity, to the place of God. They're not exempting, they're not exempting in Acts, the Father and the Holy Spirit. They're just saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, he's God. You're going to be identified in baptism with that name, along with Father and Holy Spirit, the God, the Godhead. Notice, teaching them, verse 20, teaching them. And it, it may be semantics for some, because some of your Bibles say obey. Okay, I get that, but I'm not really certain I catch that with tereo. I, for me, the idea is I love the word observe. Because I think what it means is like an observatory. You know, when, when, you, when you look through the telescope and then you, that focuses where you want it to focus and your intent as you're looking as, as carefully as you possibly can to see everything that you can possibly see, that is exactly the idea here. It's, it's not about just obey everything. The idea is you be intent on the proper teaching. You focus on this proper teaching. You make this your direction. There's so many people who will not take the basics of the Christian life. They, they say, well, I've got an exception here. I don't have to live in love with my husband or my wife. I don't have to obey my parents because look at my age. Okay, I don't have to respect them. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. And I don't, because there's not a command. Listen, how about this? How about just taking the words of Jesus, observe them, fixate on them, and don't disobey the scriptures because of your prejudice or because this is what you want to accomplish in your life. You can rationalize anything. So I look at the text and it says, okay, observe, focus in on the text and focus on everything that I commanded you. This, this is extremely important. And then let me finish with this. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the, here's the question. If Jesus is enthroned in the power and he's enthroned there, how can he be with us always to the end of the age? All right. Turn, if you will, to John. Real quickly, let's move. The beauty part of my buzzer here is I can put it on pause and it just stays there at .01. We're almost done. I want you to look at these two texts. John chapter 14 is one of the most precious chapters as Jesus teaches his disciples and the ministry of the Spirit is extremely important here. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, what will you do? You'll keep your commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. He will be in you. Now look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, but look at the last phrase. I will come to you. How can that be? Because the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Father, there's a Trinitarian connection. So by virtue of the Holy Spirit being in you, 
then you can say with Paul, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Turn over to his prayer. I love the high priestly prayer of John 17. Would you do that real quickly? John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only. 1720. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us. Did you get that? I'm in you, you in, you're in me, they in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. The glory of the unity of the brothers and the sisters is a glory that goes far beyond what we could imagine. The glory that you have given me, I give to them. They may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. I mean, these are incredible terms. When you see this interconnection, you know, Christ and the Father, the Father in Christ, you in them. The unity that takes place, the glory that is displayed by this, and all the world will know. So I end up with this, men and women. We need the presence of God today, but I think that's one thing that's missing much in our circles. We read through that so quickly in Matthew 28. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yeah, I got it. Really? Moses in Genesis or in Exodus 33 said this to God. If your presence does not go with me, I am not moving one inch. Israel is not going to move one inch. Your presence has to be with us. What if we take that same idea? And we are practicing the presence of God so that when we are in a confrontational orbit we're thinking I mean God is here when we are tempted to go another direction I mean God is here I am his touch point of light so that when we consider the presence of God I'm in school whether it's grammar school or high school or it's college or it's seminary or it's at work, or it's on a ship, wherever it might be, in the home, in the neighborhood, there is a presence of God. This is the power. So that it animates me, it moves me, it allows me to be able to see what only God can do in a life that is committed as a disciple. So God's not asking you to give $1,000. If you want to give $1,000, I can give you vbts.oedu. They'd be glad to take that. He's not talking about it. He's talking about our hearts. What God wants is your heart. And when God gets your heart, then you can think through, I am a learner. I have a relationship. His presence is with me, and I am committed I am not committed as the, in a form to an individual or to a religious function. I am committed to Father, Son, Spirit. What does he want me to do at this moment? Don't rationalize. If we come to this conclusion, then I wonder if the percentages start to go up. No longer just 10% of true believers in the world 
maybe it can start moving. Because I wonder if the world sees anything in us that causes them to want to know God. Does the world see anything in my marriage that moves them to Jesus? Does the world see anything in my work ethic that moves them to Jesus? So when I think of these things, aren't you glad that the preacher's not the Holy Spirit? (laughs) But I want to move you into an orbit of a caution with a blessing. God pursues his people. With a correction. We worship with hesitation until we really know who Jesus is, the one with all authority, the power enthroned who mediates God's power on this earth as well as in heaven. And one command, that's all you got this week. Make a disciple. Invest yourself in things that go beyond the moment. And may God help me and you to do this together. Would you stand with me, please, for prayer? With his heads bowed and eyes closed, could you in your heart either do one of two things. Number one, you're a potential disciple. I mean, because you're here. (laughs) So you want to learn. You want a relationship. But the commitment part, that's the difficulty. And Matthew's very strong on the commitment. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. So if it's the issue of commitment, would you just talk to the Lord about that? Or maybe it's a recommitment because you know the Lord has been pursuing you for quite some time. He's been pursuing you. Are you ready now just to say, yeah, yeah. Take a moment and talk to the Lord in your heart. Would you do that? Wow, Lord, how do, how do, we, how do we conclude this? One command. Would you help me to do that better? Would you continue to pursue me, pursue my wife, pursue my children, pursue my grandchildren, pursue my family? May we be tender. Help us to love in our homes so that the glory of Jesus is seen. Help us to love in the workplace so people will know that there is a difference, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And I pray that this final paragraph written by a former tax collector sinner, the passion of his soul would grip us And we want to say today, Lord, that we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.